The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. Welcome to Restoration Radio. I am your host, Stephen Heiner. Um, Tonight we are joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. And both His Excellency and I this morning were woken up by some interesting news. Um, There was an announcement from the Vatican that Benedict XVI was turning in his resignation, giving his two weeks' notice. Um, Today we're going to be talking about the implications of such a resignation, evaluate Benedict XVI's legacy and reign, and talk about what lies ahead. Before we do that, we'll tell you a little bit more about our show for those of you who've never heard us before. Um, We are a show dedicated to discussing history, literature, theology, philosophy from a traditional Catholic viewpoint. Restoration Radio is underwritten by True Restoration Media, which has streaming downloads and interviews available at truerestorationmedia.com. While some of our costs are underwritten by True Restoration, we are genuinely dependent on donations from our many listeners who appreciate what we are trying to do with this apostolate. If you want to support our efforts, you can do so uh, via PayPal by sending a donation to truerestoration at gmail.com. My guest tonight, um, Bishop Donald Sanborn, has been a priest and bishop for many years now, and he is in charge of guiding young men to the priesthood. And he all he heard the same, or at least, you're actually, I don't know if you heard it on the radio or you read it in a text. How did you How did you first hear about the news? I saw it on AP this morning. I, I okay. always look at AP, uh, and I was very surprised to, to see it. And it was, uh, I guess it was a surprise for everybody because it seems that Benedict did not tell anyone about, did not tell too many people about it and just sort of announced it in consistory uh, with the other cardinals. I'm going to read briefly from that from that statement. Um, essentially, he just cited health reasons. Um, I am well aware that this ministry, due to its essential spiritual nature, must be carried out not only with words and deeds, but no less with prayer and suffering. However, in today's world, subject to so many rapid changes and shaken by questions of deep relevance for the life of faith, in order to govern the bark of St. Peter and proclaim the gospel, both strength of mind and body are necessary, strength which in the last few months have deteriorated in me to the extent that I have had to recognize my incapacity to adequately fulfill the ministry entrusted to me. For this reason, and well aware of the seriousness of this act, with full freedom I declare that I renounce the ministry of Bishop of Rome, successor of St. Peter, 
entrusted to me by the Cardinals on 19 April 2005 in such a way that it's from 28 February 2013 at 8 o'clock, the See of Rome, the See of St. Peter will be vacant, and a conclave to elect the new Supreme Pontiff will have to be convoked by those whose competence it is. So, Your Excellency, when you when you saw this on AP and you heard this news, what was your initial reaction? Uh, I thought uh, I, I was surprised at the suddenness of it, but I was not surprised at the fact of it. Um, the uh, I, I could see it coming in the sense that he was looking a little tired, and uh, he is 85, uh, and uh, he hinted at it in his book when he was interviewed that if ever comes the day when I think I can't function, uh, that he would do this. So... Um, I'm not. Uh, I'm not. I wasn't bowled over by the news. It just. It was somewhat sudden. That's all. Uh, but I, I somewhat expected it uh, that it would happen fairly soon. Right. And I'm going to ask you a little bit more, Your Excellency. But we have a ton of calls in the queue already, and um, the listeners in our call queue will know that. Um, we are not going to take calls for the first 15 minutes of the show. We're going to be. Uh, talking about some things to set us up for a conversation in which your questions can be inserted. So those of you who are on hold right now, you're welcome to continue to hold, uh, but um, we won't get to your calls for another 15 minutes or so. So you're welcome to stay there on hold. You'll be able to listen to us live um, in the in the hold room. But otherwise, I'm not ignoring you. I see that – oh, there's another three more calls that went in. Very popular, Your Excellency. Mm. Um, we'll wait to get to your calls. I guess – Further, the follow-up to that question is, Your Excellency, a lot of people would say, well, why do you – why would you care whether someone you don't consider to be pope is resigning? Does it matter to you? Uh, yes. I mean, that, that's what I thought, obviously, that uh, as far as uh, I'm concerned, he never achieved the papacy. Uh, what he did achieve was an election to the papacy, but he never achieved the power and never achieved being a true pope. Because of his uh, willingness and his firm uh, will to promulgate and maintain Vatican II, uh, the whole problem goes back to Vatican II. Uh, and as for as long as these post-Vatican II pope elects uh, have this intention, uh, we don't have a, a true pope. So that that should be clear right from the outset. So I, I was not terribly upset. If this had been Pius XII, it would have been a, a tremendous blow to me but uh, not for Benedict. So according to your thesis, Your Excellency, does that mean that someone could both be elected and also assume the pa papacy? I mean, it might be a very, it might be a slim to none chance, but is that something you foresee as possible? It is possible if these pope-elects, that is the ones that come out of a post-Vatican II conclave, they, in my view, uh, receive a true designation to be pope, something like a president-elect, but cannot achieve the power because they posit an obstacle to receiving the power, which is that they intend to promulgate and maintain all of the reforms of Vatican II. It would be something like this, as if a new president elected in 2016 in November refused to take the oath of office in January or said, I will, I will impose a different constitution on the United States and I take an oath to that new and different constitution. If he said that, he would not become the president of the United States. Yet he would remain a president-elect. 
until such time as that w- would be uh, legally removed from him. And th- this is the case of these uh, post-Vatican II popes, in quotation marks, that they achieve uh, a, a legitimate election, but not a, a true possession of power. Now, if they remove the obstacle, then, yes, they could become the pope. That, that is the, uh, the position that I take. That they are, in a, okay. they are in, the, in a position to become the Pope, but they are not true Popes. Well, we've had anti-Popes in the past. We've had false papal claimants, but we've also actually had papal resignations. When you've had an institution as old as the Church is, you, so, almost everything has happened. And so we have had Popes resign before, or at least papal, in, in some cases anti-Popes have resigned as well, claimants to the papacy. Mm-hmm. So the last one we had prior to this was almost a thousand years ago. Um, Pope Gregory the Twelfth, mm-hmm. and that was uh, also during actually quite a time of confusion. You refer, Your Excellency, to the fact that this man is not Pope, um, but not everybody knows that. Not everybody know ha- has been brought to the knowledge of that. Mm-hmm. In the same context with Gregory the Twelfth, there certainly was no internet or email back then, so mm-hmm. he resigned when there was a lot of confusion about the papacy. Can you can you talk about how? that resignation is different from this resignation. Uh, if I recall, that's the one that resigned in the uh, 11th century uh, uh, after it had been proven that he uh, essentially bought the papacy by getting uh, Benedict the Ninth. I think it was. I'm a little bit off. I mean, it could be off on some of the numbers. But another Benedict to uh, resign because he was so horrible. He, he had been... Uh, uh, appointed by some strong men uh, at, at 20 years old, uh, and uh, he was debauched, and, and he had everything wrong with him. And uh, then this other uh, individual uh, gave him, it says, you know, large gifts to resign from the papacy. And I, th- I believe that was uh, Gregory the Twelfth. And then he, Gregory the Twelfth, resigned because of that accusation of simony. Now, that was the awful 11th century for the papacy. It was uh, one of the worst, probably the worst time for the papacy. Uh, and, uh, but there were others. There was a very famous case of Pope Celestine V. He's a saint uh, who uh, resigned. Uh, the authors say because he made a mess of it. Uh, he was a, uh, a monk, and he was selected for the papacy, and he had no capabilities with regard to administration and he realized that and after about five months I think it was uh, he first made a statement a document saying it is legitimate for popes to resign and then he resigned and became a monk again uh, and and uh, everyone thought it was a wonderful idea because it was just the wrong thing for him to be doing uh, so if there is precedent there is um, uh, then there is now this uh, there is the uh, Avignon Popes. There was a, uh, and I, I, I just can't remember the names right now. But uh, both the Roman and the uh, and the Avignon Pope uh, resigned uh, in favor of the one elected by the Council of Constance, which was and Pisa too. What uh, the, uh, the one elected by the Council of Constance, which was Martin V. Right. So they all resigned in favor of him. Now you had a true Roman Pope there, and he resigned. So there's really. Uh, there's no uh and then also there were some conditional um re- resignations there was a resignation in the 3rd century by saint pontian who was being sent into exile and he didn't want the see to be vacant so he resigned from it 
And uh, but there was, uh, I believe, Pius VII. Uh, yes, he made a conditional resignation uh, from the papacy uh, if he were taken prisoner in France. Uh, and uh, there was talk even that Pius XII made a, a similar conditional resignation if he had been taken prisoner by the Nazis. So, you know, it's, it's something unusual for us, but uh, there is really no problem in it uh, from the legal point of view. There's, there's no uh, no offense to theology or law in it. So how is that different from our case today? Not only uh, he's not being kidnapped or held under duress, he's he's taking a way out that John Paul II never did. You know, John Paul II suffered Parkinson's disease, and people watched that for years and years. And Benedict, I think, having witnessed that, has decided he's taking he's taking the way out right now. So what are I think sorry, that, you know, if he were a true Roman pontiff, I would say he that uh, he was doing the right thing if, in fact, his capacities are diminished. Uh, otherwise, it would be up to the College of Cardinals. Let's say he, he has dementia. It would be up to the College of Cardinals to declare him demented and proceed to a new conclave, which is a much more violent type of way to deal with it. Um, or they would just say nothing and uh you know he would be kept in the Vatican and really somebody else would be running the church. Mm. And that's not very good either. So I mean from that point of view it, it, there's nothing unreasonable about it. However, it does uh there is in in the tradition of the church there is a relationship of father to people in the in the bishop and in the pastor of the parish and of course in the pope. And just as your father remains your father until he dies, so by analogy, it's not a perfect analogy, but uh, there was a type of, of enduring relationship uh, with the with the church uh, that the Pope had, and, and that went until death. Mm. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, where possible, that should be respected, but perhaps it cannot be respected in all cases. One of the interesting things that was mentioned in, in line with what you said today was the idea of the papacy as a ministry, not as a vocation. That there is a there there can be a finite time at which this ends outside of death. It's just that it's not often been chosen, so it's very strange when it does actually happen. Yes, it, it is a uh, uh, yes, it is a power from God to to you know perform a function and you have to have the necessary qualities to perform that function is you know if you went crazy or if you you know uh, if some physical problem prevented you from doing it then uh, obviously you have to go and um, uh, or somebody has to make you go uh that would be true of any any kind of public office uh, you know so you know the, the fact of resignation is is really a non-event uh, from the point of view of either theology or law. Well, now that we're looking back, good dating back to 2005, what can we, what can we look back and say are, are sort of touchstone points of Benedict's legacy? Where we can look back and say this was something that was really important. And in your essay, I want to reference an article that you wrote. Um, about what to expect. I think a lot of people, a lot of, you would say, conservatives, were very excited when um, Cardinal Ratzinger was elected, or selected, as you would say. Mm -hmm. 
And you wrote an article in May of 2005, which is which was titled "Don't Get Your Hopes Up" about mm-hmm. Ratzinger. Yeah. And a couple of things you said I thought were really interesting. One, you said that he will give something to the indult movement and the fraternity of St. Peter, which we saw in the Motu. We also, the Motu Proprio, uh, Sumorum Pontificorum, Sumum Pontificorum, and we also saw that with the messing with the New Missal and trying to make some of the translations a little more traditional. Yes. And also the appeal to the Society of St. Pius X to become regularized. So I give credit where credit is due, Your Excellency. You did get a couple of these predictions, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But but ultimately, I think your your article goes back to the point that you made at the beginning. The reason not to get your hopes up about Ratzinger was because he's professing some fundamentally different things about the faith than we've known about Catholicism since time immemorial. And we saw this manifested in certain acts. We saw him praying in the Blue Mosque. We saw a modification to the Good Friday prayer. We saw a reference to Muslims worshiping the same God. Are there any of these that you want to comment in particular on, Your Excellency? And and after you start talking about that, I will start taking some calls from our callers and from Twitter. But any of those things in particular, either the Modu Proprio, the SSPX, or some of these quote-unquote ecumenical actions of him in public, any of these that you want to particularly focus on to start our discussion? Yeah, so first of all, he he has the intention and always had the intention, indeed he was the architect of Vatican II, so he had this intention of imposing Vatican II. The Church's problems today go back to Vatican II. That is a new constitution uh, that is trying to be imposed upon the Catholic Church. So that's the principal problem with Ratzinger, and for as long as any of these are are doing precisely that, there's, there's nothing to hope for in them. Uh, the, the the second thing is that Ratzinger is a radical modernist. He uh, and yet he managed to present himself as a staunch conservative in theology, but he is a radical modernist. He always was a radical modernist. When I was in the seminary uh, as, a, as a teenager, he was named with Rahner uh, and Schillebex and all the others as the radical modernist theologians. And he himself said that he never changed. And we see this in his radical statements concerning the resurrection of Christ and uh, the general resurrection from the dead, uh, about the uh, blessed sacrament, for example, the scandalous and implicitly heretical statement that he made about the Blessed Sacrament that uh, that um, he said to go to church on the ground that one can visit God who is present there is a senseless act which modern man rightfully rejects. It's a direct quote from his book. Um, Was that Introduction to Christianity? No, that's, uh, I have it in German, Die Sacramentale Begründung der Christlichen Existenz. Uh, from 1966, you see, that's when he was more freewheeling. Uh, and, uh, but then he saw the necessity, in order to save Vatican II, to become conservative and to wrap Vatican II in a conservative uh, paper. And that was really the essence of his papacy. Uh, he wanted to keep all of the radical theology and at the same time make it appear as if it is continuity. And most of the people have fallen for that just flat on their faces. Hmm. 
uh, and uh, he has succeeded in that and has succeeded in, in creating this myth of being a conservative. He's a radical. Uh, he denies the, the general resurrection from the dead. He says that this is not a question of of uh, bodies. Uh, let's see. This is uh, an introduction to Christianity. He says, It now becomes clear that the real heart of faith in the resurrection, he's talking about the general resurrection at the end of the world, does not consist at all in the idea of the restoration of bodies. Now, this mm. is directly contrary to dogmatic statements of the Catholic Church, directly contrary. Uh, well, people and, always uh, weasel out and saying he's expressing a private opinion, and so you can't hold him to that, Your Excellency. Well, How would it means you that he's a public heretic, though. <laughs> he's a public heretic. That might be his private opinion, but he's a public heretic, and that's undeniable. That statement is heretical to say mm. that there is not a restoration of bodies. It's against the Athanasian Creed, which is one of the the solemn creeds of the Catholic Church. Well, with that, um, we'll on with His Excellency. Hello, this is David yes. Salcido calling from Fresno, California. Hello, Hello David. Hi, um, Your Excellency. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was just uh, listening to one of your sermons, and um, they're fantastic. And um, it has to do with... Um, uh, some of the end times and even Philadelphia, and so I'm a I'm a Seti Vacantist, so that's my position regarding these things. Are Seti Vacantists actually supposed to be looking for, or do they generally look for a restoration through the papacy at some time, or are we really not looking for a, a valid, um, a real pope uh, to come? Uh, back to the chair of Peter. Well, of course, in principle we are. I mean, we don't know the providence of God, uh, but in principle we are always hoping for a pope. You could not be Catholic and not hope for a pope and uh, and look forward to a pope. Uh, uh, but uh, we don't know. I mean, it, it, the the church by a miracle of God could be turned around and an order restored uh, by a miracle of grace, and that's the only thing that will do it. Or it, this may be the beginning of the end times, in which uh, we have, see a tremendous loss of faith, and where the number of faithful will, will be reduced to a very small number. And as Cardinal P says, uh, and said in the 19th century, the practice of the faith will be something that will happen in the privacy of homes. Uh, it could. It, we don't know. What we do know is that Vatican II has given us a false religion in our Catholic institutions and that if we are to be faithful to our baptismal promises, we must resist them and reject them. That's clear. Uh, the rest is up to God, and, and yes, of course, uh, every state of Acantus that I know would, would hope for a restoration of, of order, and that would come from the election of a truly Catholic Pope. Does that answer your question, David? Yes, thank you, Your Excellency, and thank you for a great show. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for calling. All right. The... Uh, the next caller in queue is calling from Colorado, and I will put you on. You are live with um, His Excellency on Restoration Radio. Hello. 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 Yes. Uh, yes, my name is Michael. I'm calling from Harper's Ferry. Uh, I have a question uh, not directly related to Benedict XVI, but rather some other recent news. 
Um, namely that of the splinter group, the uh, Society of St. Pius X of the quote-unquote strict observance. Mm-hmm. And their from the uh, the rest of the SSPX, uh, Bishop Sanborn, uh, then yes. Father Sanborn, wrote a great article on that in 1991 called Resistance and Indefectibility. And uh, given that he wrote it, I was curious to know what he thought about this recent development and if it would lead to any good or uh, not really any change. In other words, the splinter group would... Uh, discontinue the previous position of the SSPX while Bishop Soleil worked on merging back into the Yeah, That's a good question. Uh, Each side is seeing itself as the continuation of the true spirit of Archbishop Lefebvre. And in my opinion, neither side is. Because Archbishop Lefebvre was someone in his whole career uh, and this is not to detract from his great virtues and courage and faith and piety, but on, on the theology of what to do about the Novus Ordo, he flip-flopped and zigzagged constantly. So the only way to to stay in that group and to, to uh, conform was to flip-flop and zigzag with him. As a result of this flip-flopping and zigzagging, he created a whole school of thought that was resistant to Vatican II and condemning of Vatican II and, and the Vatican II hierarchy. And then a whole other school of thought, which is to make peace with the, the Vatican II and, and the Vatican II hierarchy. So, to me, the true followers of Archbishop Lefebvre would be a group that would continue to flip-flop but not one that is following either one line or the other line of Archbishop Lefebvre. So uh, that said, uh, the, uh, my feelings about the, what is happening now and the priests breaking off, I, I don't see them as organizing into anything significant. I think that each one will go his own way and, and perhaps be in relation with the others, an informal relation with the others, but uh, I think they're too spread out, and, and they, they would need a whole new formation. Uh, and uh, they also are continuing the same old line that, on the one hand, uh, the new religion is evil and rotten and false. On the other hand, those who promulgate it are the true hierarchy of the Catholic Church. And that doesn't make any sense. Uh, and it never will make any sense. And the, the actual split now where you have sort of the liberals and conservatives shows that it doesn't make any sense because only one or the other side makes sense. <laughs> uh, in other words, there, there is a logical line that says hook back up with the Novus Ordo. There's a logical line that says reject the Novus Ordo. But uh, they, they, uh, they're, they're continuing that, that impossible position, and, and I think that they will have the same kind of problems. Until they reject the Novus Ordo hierarchy as the Catholic hierarchy, they will hold out to any seminarians that they may attract the idea of reconciling with the Catholic, what they consider to be the Catholic hierarchy. There's a gravitational pull. From uh, on the part of the Catholic toward the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. And if you say to a young seminarian, these people are the popes and the cardinals and the bishops, and they all have power from Christ to rule the Church, well, what do you expect? They're, people will say, well, we better get regularized with these people if they have the power of Christ. 
That's the only logical thing to do. Does, so, does you know, have... I, I don't see much hope in them because they have not seen the, the mistake of the past 40 years of the SSPX. Does that answer your question, Michael? Uh, yes, it does. I was curious. One of the, In fact, I put this to one of the priests uh, who joined the SSPX, SO, Father Chazal. Um, I wasn't being snarky, but I couldn't help but ask him... Um, it's striking that the first time when Vatican II hit, I think it's safe to say that it took most Catholics by surprise. They didn't anticipate it, and all of a sudden the faithful Catholics were, basically they had been robbed of all their churches. Uh, so that was the first time around. What I thought was it would be funny, if it weren't so sad, that here we are again, where the SSPX, and in fact you, Bishop Sanborn, were the one who, uh, from what I gather and from what you told me, um, for example, found the property in Ridgefield, Connecticut, which was their first seminary in the U.S. Yes, that's correct. Here were all these properties all over the U.S., all over the world, that traditional or more or less traditional Catholics had sacrificed to get to buy uh, as our new home and um, or their new home, the SSPX, and here they were, 2012 or 13, and they had just been blown out of all of those. And so I, it, I was curious um, if that would lead these breakaway priests and bishops to think, well, maybe we, maybe there was. If it would make give them second thoughts about their position, to be honest, I I agree with Bishop Sanborn. I I doubt it will really make them change their mind, but I was hoping that it would that it would make them think, okay, you know, for this, how could this possibly happen to us again, uh, and and lead them down sort of a theological road to the position that Bishop Sanborn espouses. But we'll see. I don't have high expectations of them myself, but. Uh, Thank you very much for responding. Well, just let me uh, comment about that. The, Michael, thanks uh, for your question. Uh, when when you exit that group, it's something like having a blindfold fall off your eyes, or scales, <laughs> in the case of St. Paul, uh, fall off your eyes, in, in, in this sense that you don't have this tremendous pressure to conform, uh, which is very strong in the SSPX. You must conform. You must You must espouse the party line. That disappears all of a sudden, and sometimes they they take a step back and are able to think and are able to consider various arguments in an objective manner. So I, I would not abandon all hope about them, but for right now they're still still uh, sticking to that whole thing. And don't forget what animates SSBX is fidelity to Archbishop Lefebvre. It's not fidelity to sacred theology or or Anything. The only thing that counts is Archbishop Lefebvre, and he was never a state of vacantist. Therefore, they will not be state of vacantist. That's the way they reason. They, they are incapable, really, of theologizing about it. I think that I figured out the issue. For those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to Restoration Radio. Our topic tonight is the resignation of Benedict XVI, and our guest is Bishop Donald Sanborn, rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. 
I think those of you who are in the hold queue, what you don't know is there is a one-minute delay between what is being broadcast and what you hear on the Internet. So if you are listening to the show on your telephone, you need to turn down your radio so that when I tell you that you're on, you'll know that you're on. I think all of those people who we lost earlier, you were listening to your radio and you weren't listening to your telephone. So that should give enough time for... By the time you hear this, hopefully you'll be turning down your radio and you'll be ready to be on. I just wanted to add on, Your Excellency, to that point about the strict observance. I think it's fundamentally problematic to have a religious congregation founded in opposition to the man that they consider to be the vicar of Christ. I yes. think that there's something, there's a name for that, and it's called Protestantism. Yes. Um, and that's nothing new. Yes. So I, yes. I don't think I don't see the strict observance as anything new. If you're, you're founding your religion, if your rhizome dot is to resist the man you consider to be the vicar of Jesus Christ, then mm -hmm. I think you've got your own problems. Yes, that's an intrinsic problem that will never come to any good. Well, we'll go to our next caller who's calling from Florida. You are on Restoration Radio with His Excellency. Well, good morning. Uh, well, good evening, uh, Stephen. Good evening, Your Excellency. I just have a quick question concerning uh, Ben Sixteenth actually leaving uh, in on the twentieth of February. Who could you see as being the possible replacement of him? And if you do see replacements there, uh, would that replacement want to go ahead and actually do another council anywhere in the near future to go over Vatican II? Oh, I think it's wide open. Uh, you know, there's a lot of papabilis being mentioned. Uh, I think it's wide open. Uh, I think that there is a lot of polarization in the hierarchy, especially among the bishops, if, if not among the cardinals. The, but lower down is a, a tremendous fighting going on between the the radical liberals and the somewhat conservatives. And uh, that might surface in that conclave. You don't know. But my tendency is to say you're going to see more of the same. You, so I, I think that's Sean Bourne. Excuse me? Yeah, no, Sean Bourne are. has turned into one of those radical liberals. Uh, he, uh, no, I don't think you'll see another German. Uh, you know, they, they generally don't do that. Uh, I, no, I, I wouldn't see that. I wouldn't see an American. There's some people talking about Dolan, but uh, he'll he'll never make it. Uh, yeah, I think you're going to see a third worlder, uh, and um, uh, but somebody that will continue Ratzinger's line of putting the wrapping on Vatican II. Vatican II is in serious danger of failing historically. The condition of what is you know, the Novus Ordo, what, what appears to be Catholicism, uh, in the developed countries, uh, it, just from the point of view of numbers, we won't talk about content, just numbers, is appalling. Uh, that Cardinal Martini, uh, who recently died, said, we have these enormous churches and there's nobody in them. And uh, Europe is, is just a godless place. And, uh, and the same is happening in this country with the closing of so many churches, uh, no vocations, and also young people are not uh, attending the Novus Ordo. They're not persevering in the Novus Ordo. The only ones that persevere are the ones that are active in the parish. But the average young person is not persevering. He might go there for his wedding and so forth, but he's not a regular parishioner with them. So they have an, an aging population. 
Now, it's still quite strong. There's a lot of baby boomers and all that are raised in the traditional faith and are still giving heavily to them. But they're dying off little by little. And um, they, so they, they're facing a, a tremendous problem. And that's all because of Vatican II, as anyone knows. But they are so prideful that they will never admit that Vatican II is the cause of all of this. And so they they want to uh, promote Vatican II all the more. So, uh, But at the same time, they have to make it palatable for people who have some uh, vestiges of the Catholic faith. And, and so I think you'll see the same, uh, in my opinion, as somebody that is known as a, as a you know, a, an arch-conservative, uh, when in fact he's just a liberal, but perhaps a little less liberal than, than somebody else. Uh, but but the fundamental liberalism or modernism is Vatican II, <laughs> and and you that that's the problem. Uh, and the other thing is that you can't give what you haven't got. The, the that uh, conclave doesn't have anybody that's worthwhile in it. Not a single person. So whatever they come up with, uh, they they now they don't necessarily have to go with a cardinal. They can elect anybody they want, but. Uh, most likely it's a cardinal, and I think you'll just see more of the same. Does that answer your question? No, it does. It does. Thank you very much, and thank you, Your Excellency. Thank you. Restoration Radio with His Excellency Bishop Sanborn. Do you have a question? Hello? Yes, hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, Yes, we can. Okay, good. I'm not sure. The delay was really throwing me off on the computer. You have to turn um, that, ma'am. You have to turn that down so that you you won't get confused. Okay, thank you. I had kind of two parts to my question. The first one was, I my first thought of getting a new pope is that he will be you know, on the younger side and won't remember life before Vatican II, so that it may not be much of a conversation. That was sort of if you have comments on that. And the other part of my question is. You know, there's a lot of stuff flying up on the Internet quickly about the prophecy of St. Malachi, and I'd love to get your take on that. Okay. Well, the, first, the answer to the first one is that most of the papabiles are uh, uh, in their early 60s or later. There's one, I think, at 55. Uh, I don't think they will elect someone that's too young, first of all, because people are living longer, and that means you're stuck with somebody for 20, 25 years, as they were with JP2, uh, and uh, no one was happy with that. That's one of the reasons why they elected such an old man. Uh, I think there will be a tendency to go with somebody older for that reason, that, that they'll just last too long. They could be, with the medicine the way it is, they could be 95 before they go. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, so I, I, uh, But even if you're in your 60s, you still were raised in the traditional faith. And so I, I think that that's uh, a remote possibility that that uh, this time around. The next time around, I think, yes, they will not know anything about the traditional faith. Um, as far as the prophecies of St. Malachi, uh, I, I don't think those should be taken seriously. Uh, if you look at a lot of them, you really have to bend the uh, prophecy in order to make it fit uh, some of the popes and... Um, uh, I tend to think that they're bogus, frankly. Okay. Uh, so I would not take it seriously. Uh, you know, it's just not. not uh, I don't think there's much evidence for it. To, to add on to that, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, who wrote a biography of Saint Malachi, doesn't mention any the prophecy at all in the biography. So sometimes 
some of these things that we hear about may not may not have actual um, relevance, but I tend to agree with His Excellency on this one. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Your Excellency. Yes. Thanks for your call. Let's go to our next caller, who I think is from the Cincinnati area. You are on Restoration Radio with His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn. Do you have a question? Hello? I heard something there. <clears throat> I know. It, was, it sounded like a cell phone. Mm-hmm. Can you hear me? Going once. Yes, we can hear you. Yes, hi. Good evening, Excellency. How are you doing? Good. Um, I guess I guess my question is more is just more of a procedural one. Um, mm-hmm. As far as um, does Ratzinger then just um, remain his status as a cardinal, and then does he does he take allegiance to the new pope, or does another one uh, pope earlier became you know, retired to be a monk, but then does he just by a matter of course just kind of disappear into the back, so there's no clash of the titans, so to speak, that he um, you know doesn't disagree. So like, not like the political world where they talk to kind of like the ex presidents. They kind of go away and they don't comment on what the new president's doing. And just kind of wondering how that all plays out. Unless you're Jimmy Carter, of course. <laughs> yes, of uh, course. Well, let's talk about him as if he were a true pope. Let's put that proviso yes. on it. Yes. Uh, uh, he would go back to his original dignity before the papacy, which is the cardinalate, but it's not necessarily the cardinalate. You you know, you could go back to being even a simple right, priest. Right. Or, well, I should say, right. they have to be bishops. But you go back to what you were, and then you're subject to the new pope. So if right. he tells you, I want you to make speeches, and uh, or I want you as an advisor, then that's what you do. If he says, I want you to keep quiet and go to a monastery, that's what you do. <laughs> See, so he just becomes uh, an ordinary soldier in in the the hierarchical structure of the church. So, uh, but okay, I just you know, uh, the other the other thing is uh, the um, just watching the news and stuff like that. It just seems like it's more of a. Uh, it's raising him back to a celebrity status of, of choice. I mean, it's, it was all over Fox News and things along that line. It's just, um, it's kind of sickening and uh, to me. Uh, but I take the same position as you. Is it really? Some of my friends have asked me what my thoughts are. Is like he really, really wasn't my pope to begin with, so it's really no big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's just the way I've yes. been taking it. So, yes. but okay, thank you, Excellency. Okay, Thanks. thank you. Thanks all for right. your call. Um, thanks for actually answering when I <laughs> when I <laughs> asked you to ask your question. I think part of it too, you see, we, we can't avoid. It seems that anyone in any sort of authority position, or even if you have no authority, whatever, there's an inevitable celebrity attached to you. So everyone has to be a celebrity today if you're in the modern world. I mean, that's when he got his Twitter account recently. That was a big deal, you know, because that's what yes. you do if you're a celebrity. Yes, and I think that's one of the reasons why he's resigning. I was explaining to the seminarians today, Leo XIII went into his 90s, uh, you know, when he was Pope. and uh, But at that time, you did not have the media frenzy, and you didn't have to be a star. But now they're constantly on, on television. You you constantly have to look perfect. You you can't drool or you can't have a, a momentary problem or... Uh, so... You know, the demands, and again, I'm speaking about them as if they were real popes. They're not, but, you know, in, in that presumption, the, the demands on the modern papacy would be much greater than they were, say, 100 years ago. Sure. Uh, so um, uh, so that that's, you know, to be considered, too, that, I mean, for example, John Paul II would be seen drooling 
during the masses uh, at on St. Peter's altar, you know, which was a little. Uh, he couldn't help it, but you know, right on the camera there, he was drooling, and you know, he, he did not make a good presence on the on the on the screen. So there's a certain consideration of that too. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Restoration Radio. Our ho- our guest today is His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, and we are discussing um, the resignation of Benedict the Sixteenth. Um, we are going to go to our next caller. Who hope uh, who hopefully will will answer when he is called. We we have to we have some some script you know uh, uh, some scriptural verse maybe to to invoke our, our. You are on Restoration Radio with His Excellency. Do you have a question? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, Go ahead. I just wanted I just wanted to make a few comments. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't think that uh, this is. I think that Catholics make this more difficult than what it really is because God um has the uh left a deposit of faith here for all intellects, you know, be it however however smart people may be. Just a simple catechism could prove to us what is going on here just by the four marks of the church. You know, it has to be one holy, Catholic and apostolic. Mm-hmm. And uh <clears throat> that uh we have to obey lawful authority which Christ left here in the in the apostolicity of the church. And so this man Ratzinger, if the Holy Ghost dwells in him, <clears throat> he would not be able to be a public heretic. So uh, just that in itself is proof that he is not a lawful a canonically elected pope. Mm-hmm. And so where do you look for this lawful authority? It would have to be in the aposto- the apostles somewhere. Somewhere in this world, there's true apostles left because Christ promised the Holy Ghost to be with the bishops. Well, you're, ta- you're, and, you're uh, talking to one right now. He, he, he's yes, on, he's exactly. On with you. Sure, I, I'm just, I just wanted to make some comments, and, uh, and I think that everyone having different positions isn't being Catholic because there's only one position, and that is to be a Roman Catholic. People cannot hold different positions and different beliefs under and worship and give worship pleasing to God. You know, the, if you know, Prophet Daniel says the learned will understand, you know, in, in these last days and, and and he also mentions that some of the learned shall fall. So <clears throat> it's just uh I really don't think it's that difficult. It's just and uh you know, will the church resurrect? Sure it will, when Christ returns and destroys Rome, you know, the city where the apostasy is the head of the church is supposed to be, now, according to Cardinal Manning in his book that he wrote, you know, the, about the uh, the great apostasy or the current crisis of the Holy See. He mentions that the fathers of the church, you know, especially expressly said that uh, Rome shall apostatize from the faith, and and Christ will return and correct the problem. So when you have, you know, the hierarchy. Or how how can the hierarchy elect a lawful pope whenever they're heretics themselves? So, you know, that's just I believe that's the Catholic position and and we just have to suffer this cross. And uh that's about that's about all I have to say. Well we appreciate thank you very much. Your, appreciate your comments. Uh and your excellency I want to tie that we had a question on Twitter. Um how much longer does his excellency perceive that this 
will go on? How 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 much longer will this situation go on? To if to the if that last caller is right, we're just supposed to to bear this as our cross. What do you see as the future? I I don't know. It's uh, in, in other words, I would just say this: that all God has given us is the power to survive. He has not given us the power to solve the problem. So we have bishops, we have priests, we have seminaries and religious life and schools. We can survive, uh, but we cannot solve the problem. The, the, the solution to the problem must come from the papacy. There must be somebody in the See of Rome, legitimately elected, that uh, burns Vatican II. <laughs> and and uh, turns around and turns his back on Vatican II and everything that it has done. That is the only solution, and that can only come from the grace of God. The Church is what it is and has been such a magnificent institution and still continues to be so because of the grace of God. And, uh, you know, barring that, uh, I have no predictions. <laughs> you know, it's, just, uh, it's, it's in God's good time and, and His good providence. That's all I could say. I, I think that's uh, just one point I want to make with that uh, last comment that the man made, and that is, uh, you know, a lot of people often uh, uh, lament the um, differences of opinion and so forth among traditionalists. And yes, uh, that to a certain extent that is lamentable. But two things: one is it is a sign of their Catholicism, in as much as Catholics will only listen to the Pope to solve their theological disputes. They will not listen to anything else, and the fact that they are fighting about it shows that they are Catholics, because there's no one that can solve those things. Hmm. Secondly, they are fighting not over matters of faith. They are fighting over theological conclusions and, and uh, moral questions and what to do about the problem, but we all agree on matters of faith. I mean, I can think of all of the different groups and, and, and flavors and so forth. We all agree on matters of faith. And there is a true unity of faith among those who have resisted. Uh, but where they are fighting is in things that are not determined by the church and questions that come up as a result of this unforeseen problem. It's, it's a normal, if unfortunate, thing. Hmm. Well, those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to Restoration Radio. Uh, I'm your host, Stephen Heiner of True Restoration, and with me today is His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, who's been just answering all sorts of questions today, um, some from phantom callers who haven't been able to uh, get in. Um, those of you who are in the caller queue, um, we've, I see we keep getting new listeners every time I'm, I'm taking a look at our show count. So if you are listening to our show on your computer please turn down the volume, just listen to the show in your telephone, and that way when you get called to be on, you'll know and um, I won't accidentally hang up on you. So I'll go to our next caller. You are on Restoration Radio with... But my question, if uh, uh, Benedict XVI is uh, um, currently doing this, is there a motive of operation? Is this the modernist way of diluting or polluting the papacy and making it this is a uh, person that works in a factory with a retirement and <laughs> any scandal that comes up, it's easy for them to back out of 
and um, this is going to be common cause for the the upcoming papacy for them to uh, to simply ignore uh, the responsibilities and uh, duties to God, and and they can just back out of it. Is there is that one of the motives, or is there a serious scandal that he's trying to avoid, or what what is the motive beyond people aren't tired just to give up on things like that? Well, you know, all we can do is go on the evidence, and he says it's because he he just uh, can't handle it. He may have gotten some bad health news. We don't know. Uh, But um, he might be dead in six months or something. But uh, what you're saying is true. They have changed, and I alluded to this before, they have changed the notion of the hierarchy. It used to be, as I said, a type of father-child relationship between the bishop and his diocese and the pastor and his parish and of course the the pope and his his, the church and uh so that's why they would go right until their deathbeds in that office uh and but since vatican ii uh priests retired you see before vatican ii you never retired you might have a reduced uh uh you know activity in the parish you might just say mass and hear confessions a little bit and be taken out of circulation because you were too old but you never retired you were a priest until the day you died and functioned as a priest until the day you died now they retire and they're off to florida in yellow shorts on the golf course at age 65 or 70 and uh, then it's as if the the priesthood is just some sort of function. I mean, it's like being a lawyer or something else. And uh, and the same thing with bishops; they have to retire at seventy five, uh, and they you know, go off in the shorts and everything. Uh, and so now he, in a way, is doing this. I mean, he's he's making the uh, papacy, uh, you know, as, always with that qualification, where as if he were a real pope. Uh, a type of function, uh, just a, a service, uh, something like presidents. You know, you're a president uh, for four years, and then you you go into oblivion and found a library and and make speeches and and uh, and, uh, and that destroys that that sacred relationship uh, that was always in place before Vatican II. Um, so uh, I, I think you know there, there's truth to what you're saying, but you know. If, for example, he has dementia, he ought to resign. Uh, We don't know what he's got, but uh, if he cannot get up in the morning or or he's got problems, uh, if he's incontinent or something, uh, there's nothing else that he can do but resign. So it may be a completely legitimate reason. Has there there been cases in the past that dementia has been so severe that the Pope hasn't even been uh, for three or four years, no one even uh, seen them, and they were just basically a puppet to somebody else. And is that a precedent in any other case, or is it just always been guarded by the Holy Ghost that these people have been good health till death? Or what do we have here? I don't know of any case. Uh, I don't know of any case in history. But don't forget that people died a lot earlier, before modern medicine, and they died uh, uh, in better shape. See, modern medicine will keep your organs going, but it may not keep your mind going. So that's why nursing homes are being filled up and assisted living places, because people are still alive. Their hearts are still going with all sorts of medicine and, and, and machines and whatnot. And so that is something new, and so there's a lot more dementia now than there was, say, 100 years ago, where 
it would be nothing for you to pass away at 75 or 80. 80 years old, even when I was a child, was considered practically ancient. And now those people are out on the golf course. What about the the scenario that, uh, uh, you know, somebody is baptized Catholic like he was, and he was brought up uh, in the traditional faith, and um, it has an effect on somebody as they get older. Could he have a sense that he knows the fruit of Vatican II is rotten, and he looks at the disaster that's been called, and they're calling upon him to do something that's even more heinous than he's ever done before, and he simply says, you know, uh, I have principles and morals beyond what most modernists even uh, speculate, and I'm going to say no, and he's, he's repenting. Can he, could he re- be repenting in a seclusion of a monastery somewhere, in, uh, or would he have to make a public declaration to uh, fix his soul from what he's done in the past? Well, first of all, there's absolutely no evidence that he regrets a single thing about Vatican II. He was the architect of Vatican II. He was the deeply, deeply uh, involved in it, and he has shown this uh, uh, this intention to protect it as if it were a little baby from any kind of harm, uh, and to to keep its credibility going by wrapping it, as I said, in, in traditional paper. Uh, and uh, so there's no evidence of that whatsoever. Uh, he has promoted all of the modernist agenda. And sure, anyone can do penance, but he would have to do a public penance in order to correct what he's done. But don't hold your breath. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's, uh, he, there's no evidence at all that he regrets anything. So beyond the uh, medical evidence that hasn't been uh, disclosed, is it just a matter of vanity that the modern world doesn't want to see him drooling and we want a pope that's vigorous and and he's just not the uh, rock star that uh, John Paul II is or what 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 is this precedent uh, cause here what what's the uh, you know this is uh, modernism in its best but what does it summarize I think that it should be taken at face value that that he says he's too old uh, both mentally and physically he can't do it he has to resign. Uh, I, I don't go beyond that. I don't think there's anything more that at least we can say about it. Uh, there's no evidence for anything beyond that, and I think we should just take it as that. And last question dealing with, uh, you said that the until we get a restoration of the papacy and and, uh, and somebody to bring us back to Christ, uh, how do we know that? Uh, are we you, are we going to count on you, or what, what? 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 things are necessary for us to say? You know, is he going to do? A, have to do a, 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 a you know, all turn with Vatican II and uh, all the things and doctrine, or what? What would be necessary to say? Hey, well, like this new conclave, is he then the Pope the second that he's uh, elected? But then we decide he's not, or at what point? No. Uh, if he intends to to keep the Vatican II program going, he doesn't uh, achieve the papacy. He uh, it posits an obstacle. As I said, it would be something like a president-elect going to Washington and saying, I don't support or uphold the Constitution of the United States from 1789. I intend to impose a new Constitution on the United States, and I will swear to that. Now, if he did that, the whole country would say, oh, that man is not the president. He didn't swear to uphold the Constitution. So the same is true of these popes who, or these pope-elects 
they, in intending to to impose and continue to impose Vatican II upon the Church, they intend a new constitution, a new religion upon the institutions of the Catholic Church, and they do not achieve the authority. Uh, so um, that, that's uh, uh, what would happen in that case. So how historic is this? Is okay, it I, I mean, I, I'll have to I'll have to limit well, this. Will be your last question because we do have quite right, a few right, other right. colleagues. No problem. How historic is this? Is this uh, do other popes in the past, uh, quote unquote, uh, give up uh, the papacy to some being tired and lack of energy, or is there scandal or legitimacy that is a question to all of why? those things? Yes, historically, the, everything you mentioned has happened in history. Questions of legitimacy. So is this, is this, is this new? Is this new that he's just because he's tired, he wants to give it up? Is that is that uh, is that something that's precedent? Well, His Excellency mentioned Celestine V earlier on, who was a monk who got elected, and he just felt like he couldn't handle it. He wasn't equipped or educated enough to run the church, and he re- he retired. So I I guess I wouldn't say he was tired, but he didn't feel like he had the capacity to do it. So we do have precedent for it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, God bless. Okay, right. thank you. Thanks for your call. <sighs> well, Your Excellency, I was telling you that tonight would be different from the Vatican II show. Uh, for those <laughs> of you who uh, didn't listen, we had a very, very good show with His Excellency last season on the Second Vatican Council, and um, His Excellency was in a very friendly way interrogated for about three hours straight, um, and uh, I think we took his entire voice for the day, but uh, people continued to call. Uh, for those of you who are just joining us, some of you are asking questions that we have answered earlier on in the show. Um, so if you are joining us in Medias Res, um, some of your questions have already been answered. Um, those of you who are in the uh, telephone queue, um, go ahead and if you are listening to the show, go ahead and turn it down in the background so that when um, I pull you up for a question for His Excellency, you will be able to hear us. Um, so you're, I, I think I heard you correct, Your Excellency, that uh, Benedict is singing an Edith Piaf song, so he doesn't regret anything uh, about <laughs> Vatican II. And, uh, you know, I, I laugh every time you say, uh, I, the very first time you told me, I think I interviewed you in 2009, and, and you said that the Vatican II documents had to be burned in St. Peter's Square. And, uh, yeah, I think I still laugh every time you say it, but I'm not laughing because it's not true. I, I laugh because it, it is the drastic action that needs to be taken, but nobody ever says it out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, Bishop Tissier has said as much. Bishop Williamson has said as, as much. There, there are many people who know that this is the only way out, that, that Vatican II is, is essentially an anti-council and has to be recognized as such for us to move forward mm-hmm. uh, in the churches to say that, you know, call, call a spade a spade. Yes, it has to be dumped. Completely. There has to be a turning of of the back uh, upon Vatican II and an annulment of its acts. And uh, you know, when I say burning of the documents, yet yeah, I would love to see that. And if I were elected, that would be the first thing I would do. But uh, the equivalent would be okay. It was a, a, a condemnation of Vatican II. Or, but that council has to go. It's got to go. There's nothing to hope for until that council goes. I think I think that's something really important. Um, those of you who've been listening to some of the earlier points that His Excellency made, uh, he quoted from um, a work of the then Father Ratzinger from 1966. Novus Ordo Watch posted an English translation of that chapter uh, from the German. Thank you, Novus Ordo Watch. And I've also posted a quick 
um, snapshot of uh, Most Holy Trinity seminary, seminary where His Excellency is the rector and uh, where we're taking his time away from today to uh, work on our show. All right, we'll go back to our call queue. We'll try our third one. Hello, you're on Restoration Radio with His Excellency. Do you have a question? Yes, hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Hi, uh, good evening. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, the question I have, I guess, I'm sorry I didn't have time to uh, put together, uh, but basically I was wondering, because I'm, I guess, what you would consider a home aloner. Okay. And, um, I, I'm just wondering how you would respond, uh, Your Excellency, to those who would say that uh, the clergy of, uh, say, the SSPX, SSPB, uh, CMRI, and uh, others, uh, are not priests or bishops because they lack, uh, because of a lack of canonical mission. Well, to say they're not priests or bishops is different from a lack of canonical mission. You can be a priest or a bishop and lack canonical mission. So the question is canonical mission. Do they need canonical mission in order to function? And uh, in these times, they don't because for many reasons. One is that canon law did not foresee the situation at all and therefore cannot be applied to this situation uh, where you have an absence, a, a universal absence of hierarchy. Uh, secondly, the um, I, I think it, it labors under, the, the, the home alone position labors under a certain absurdity in the sense that uh, it, w- it would be common sense, for example, if there were a nuclear war that the police of one district would go over to another district and and help police that in order to keep order. If you could imagine after a nuclear bomb went off and and the policeman said, well, you're not in my county, so I can't stop the murderers that are trying to loot your house. Uh, There's nothing I can do because you're right over the county line. Uh, it's arguing in that way. it's, It's contrary to common sense. It's contrary to justice. It's contrary to charity to essentially say to priests, you must stay in a house and say Mass by yourself and refuse all the sacraments to the people who are starving for them because we're trying to observe this this letter of the law. It is furthermore contrary to what our Lord says to the Pharisees, that if your donkey is, is in the pit, you'll take him out on the Sabbath day because because the uh, the Sabbath... The man is not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is made for man. And so the canon law is made for man. It is not man who is made for the canon law. And so actually priests would be sinning if they observed the letter of canon law and refused the sacraments to people who needed them uh, because he would be sinning against charity. And there are, there's, I mean, it would take me probably an hour to, to explain all of that, but there is an excellent article about that by Father Chicata on the traditionalmass.org website. He treats all of that. Uh, yeah, that would be my Father, response to that. Yeah, and Father Chicata is on the phone with us. Father, did, did His Excellency miss any of those points there? Is there anything you want to add? Uh, no, I give him an A-plus on that. <laughs> <laughs> you always give a bishop an A-plus, and that's, that's not in the code of canon law. Uh, no, I, I would um, just – good evening, Your Excellency. Hello, how are you? Uh, okay. I would just uh, like to add this um, to the caller that, um, you know, I understand certainly – uh, the perplexity of, of, of people who see all of these different um, uh, church laws and, and are worried that they're not being observed. Um, 
the important thing, though, to keep in mind is something that uh, um, Bishop Sanborn did raise, that uh, I think there's the tendency to look at the issue of, of uh, observing all of these cano- canonical niceties from uh, the wrong perspective. The priest actually does have an obligation to um, save souls, to administer the sacraments. And you will find uh, writers and, and commentators on uh, the Code of Canon Law and on sacramental moral theology who will say that, well, when the priests are lacking who actually have what you would call uh, a formal canonical mission, and the authors speak in times of, let's say, persecution or, or, or war, those priests who do not have that um, canonical mission actually have an obligation in virtue of charity and in virtue of their ordination to go ahead and to uh, administer the sacraments to people who need them. So I would say that it's it's, it's uh, how you look at it, and I'd encourage you to uh, change your perspective and, and look at it maybe from that point of view. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks you. for your call. I'm sure the gentleman did not expect the the uh, Father Chicada to join in the middle of his question, but um, <laughs> Father Chicada was nicer than I was. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. well, well. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Father Anthony Chicada has uh, come on to join us uh, to, to share some perspectives, also to give some voice relief to His Excellency, who's been answering questions pretty much nonstop for the last hour. Um, Father, you've uh, have you been listening to the show? Uh, yes, I have. Yes. Uh, any perspectives that you want to share, or any any uh, points of reflection that you think are relevant? Well, I think that that Bishop Sanborn's um, uh, conclusion from looking at these recent events is uh, fundamentally correct on the point that um, uh, uh, Ratzinger, Benedict the Sixteenth, uh, has. Uh, um, had given us really what the whole story is. In other words, that that he feels that he simply cannot go on uh, doing what he's been doing. So uh, I would agree with that. The other thing that uh, I think is is important to consider is is that uh, there is this um, consequence that Bishop Sanborn talks about that uh, he uh, it's it's like resigning from uh, just a plain old job. And uh, while I don't think that that necessarily was Benedict XVI's intention, I think it will have that practical effect in the future, that there will always be this pressure for whoever is in that position that you get to 85 or you it gets to a point where people perceive you're not being able to do everything they think you should do in the uh, media-savvy modern church, and you'll be expected to resign. So I think that there will be this pressure. And I think it's a a consequence of that, perhaps an unintended consequence. It also seems he's excluded himself from the conclave. I think that news broke later, uh, earlier today, that he... He won't be. That would be sort of an interesting position, wouldn't it? Be you, uh, you'd, you'd sort of still be the de facto uh, person that everyone would look to in the conclave. So I think he's sort of solving that by by getting out. Well, he's overrated yeah, in any case. Yeah, yeah, he's already removed his uh, right to uh, to vote anyway. 
I probably it's odd that you can run the too. church when you're 85, so to speak, but you can't vote for a, a pope if you're 80. Yeah. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> no. So um, we've got a couple questions from Twitter. Uh, one, uh, has Bishop Williamson commented on Benedict's resignation? Uh, the answer is no, not that I know of. The second question, or our fifth question, rather, would the election of an Eastern patriarch help in restoration? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Well, I, I, again, Vatican II. Are, are, do they promote Vatican II? Are they in agreement with Vatican II? Then no. Then you might as well just, or you know, uh, uh, elect anybody. It all goes back to that problem. Uh, and you know, those those Eastern rites generally have one eye and one foot in schism. You know, they, they. Uh, I don't think that. Uh, Many of them do, uh, especially since Vatican II. You know, they, they, they came back from schism, and uh, many of them have not really divorced themselves from it. So I, I really don't think that would uh, be of any use. There's always the tendency. I was going to ask if you had anything to add, Father. Uh, there's always the tendency to think that there, uh, the Eastern rites are going to be more conservative. And while immediately after Vatican II, I think that uh, it was the case, uh, I have the uh, impression now, you know, after all these uh, many years, pretty much the same as Bishop Sanborn's, that uh, it, it's that as a result of the encouragement of ecumenism, uh, Vatican II, that uh, there is a, a, a tendency toward that, you know, the the, uh, the one foot in schism, as Bishop. Sanborn says. Yeah, that's a great expression. Was it one hand and one foot or one eye? One eye (laughs) on it and one foot in it. (laughs) Yes. Uh, uh, But it it does go back, it all goes back to the the problem of Vatican II. And as they would say in modern recovery language, you know, they are still in deep denial about it. uh, I mean, uh, it it is, uh, you have this terrible... Uh, a mess in the church that uh, occurs immediately after Vatican II, uh, and uh, all of these these terrible problems and all of these defections, and uh, you still have to maintain Vatican II and say that there's absolutely nothing wrong with it, that it was uh, perhaps it was uh, misinterpreted. Well, I mean, who brought it home and uh, put it into practice? It was the, the the bishops who who passed the decrees of Vatican II, and you know we saw everything um, uh, we saw everything go downhill from there, and every everything uh, 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 fall apart. And they they continued to deny that there's any cause and uh, effect relationship. They say it's a post hoc ergo propter hoc that uh, you know merely because Vatican II happened. Um, before all of these awful things happened in the church, that there's no causal relationship. And they try to blame it on sociology or the uh, uh, revolution in the 60s uh, and so on. But it's, it's a religious problem that is a religious cause. And uh, they're the ones who caused it, those who advocated Vatican II. I'd like to add, too, that uh, in all of those discussions with the SSPX, the Vatican is always saying, oh, there, there is no contradiction between the traditional faith and Vatican II. And 
and that there is an interpretation of Vatican II that is continuous and in conformity with tradition. And it's like a unicorn. Well, where is it? You know, would you please tell us how to solve the contradiction between Quantacura and, and religious liberty? Could you please tell us? And But they, they just constantly repeat the same thing without ever giving a solution. I mean, supposedly, we look to Rome... I mean, if they were the true uh, representatives of Christ, they, they uh, looked to Rome to solve uh, theological problems and disputes. <laughs> I mean, why do you have the authority of the Pope? Uh, but they uh, they never give a solution, that because there is no solution. That's why they don't give it. But they no. constantly insist that this solution exists somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not only hard-headed Sadie Vacantes who pointed that out, but that was the point of Gerardini, Monsignor Gerardini, who was a um, uh, you know a fully paid-up member of the Vatican II Church and canon of St. Peter's and, and uh, a conservative theologian of what was called the Roman School. That uh, he, he wrote a book saying that, uh, in effect, we're always being told that there's continuity uh, and that uh, the Pope is telling us that, um, uh, you know, we, we have to maintain there is continuity, but no one can show us where it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, which shows, I think, their their insincerity. Yes. Well, yeah, and your, your allusion to the unicorn, it would have to be a unicorn and not a unicorn at the same time. That would be the, uh, <laughs> the, the most apt. It's a non-unicorn unicorn. <laughs> Um, and to your to your point, you're actually about one foot and one eye in schism. I, interestingly enough, um, back in my Roman Roman R O A M I N Catholic days, um, I was at the Byzantine Rite, and I think it was shortly after some accord was signed, you know, recognizing that the you know the Roman Church was always wrong about something. And I went to these missiles, and and at uh, most Byzantine Rite uh, places, they have permanent missiles with the liturgy of Saint John uh, Saint John Chrysostom. And in each single one of these missiles, I don't know if it was the sacristan or someone, they had scratched out and the sun from the mm-hmm. creed because there had been some approval that it was okay to use the pre-Athanasian creed anyway. So someone went to the trouble of scratching it out in all of these missiles. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, um, I yeah. see the, yeah. the one eye and one foot uh, out <laughs> yeah. uh, quite yeah. quite certainly. Yes, yeah, no, that's... Uh, well, don't forget, they all came back from schism. The, uh, I mean, you could say, well, they were all originally Catholic, but all of those Eastern Rites are refugees from one of those schismatic sects. Hmm. And uh, so they, their roots are there. All right, we'll, we'll go back to our call queue. Uh, if I announce the state of the caller before, maybe the caller will know. So uh, the next caller is calling from the state of Maine, um, name is from Lobst- Lobsterland. Hello, you're Hi, on Restoration Radio. Hello, my name is Betty Ann, and I'm from Maine. Mm-hmm. Hi, Betty Ann. And we. Hi, um, I'm. Uh, good evening. Um, excuse me, I'm very nervous. So, um, right. hello, Your Excellency, mm-hmm. and Father Cicada. It's good to talk to be both of you. Now. <laughs> okay, I'll try not to be. Um, as Catholics, we're not supposed to interpret Scripture on our own, but in in relation to the Church's uh, teachings. And this is in relation to the reading of the Apocalypse. We as Catholics are to live each uh, to live our lives as if it were our, each day was our last. 
And um, is would it be wise for us in reading the apocalypse that we should recognize some of these signs as prophecies pertaining to our time, or are we unwise in doing that? It, it's very dangerous. St. Jerome said of the apocalypse that every word is a symbol. And uh, the the church itself has not interpreted the apocalypse, uh, maybe for a few exceptions, uh, some verses. It has applied some verses in the sacred liturgy, and, and perhaps here and there it has quoted it in dogmatic statements. But for the most part, uh, the what St. John is predicting there and uh, is is obscure, and there have been many attempts to interpret it, uh, and some of them, uh, you know, uh, some passages are clearer than others. Uh, those referring to the Antichrist are, are quite clear. But, you know, to put together a whole model, let's say, based on the apocalypse is dangerous uh, because it, it's, it's just a very difficult book to, to understand. Uh, some say that it doesn't even uh, reflect our times, that it all concerned the Roman Empire and that everything in the apocalypse has already taken place. There are some uh, scripture scholar traditional ones that say that. Uh, but most would say that it concerns the whole life of the church and that there are things that are being worked out in it as time goes on. Uh, and uh, But, uh, I mean, it would just be uh, more of a, a pious curiosity to, to read it and try to figure it out, but it could be dangerous, too. Thank you. Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for calling. Well, that that worked when I announced the state prior to. Then the caller was able to. That, that, that might be that might be the uh, the abracadabra word. All right. So our next caller is calling from Pennsylvania. Let's see if this works. You are on Restoration Radio. Hello. Hello. Yes. Hello. Hello. You can hear me. Yes. Yes. Hey. Um. I just wanted to ask if you had seen the um, article from a year ago in the Telegraph, which uh, predicted that within a year the Pope would be assassinated. No, I'm not familiar with that article. You're talking about the Daily Telegraph in England? Uh, yes. Well, I would put I more sort of... more uh, authority in the National Enquirer than in that thing uh, that is published over there. I mean, the uh, you know that's just to sell a newspaper. Okay, so uh, that, that has no legitimacy then. <laughs> right. And, and what uh, what predictions would you have for the next pope? Would you expect a Vatican III or anything uh, like that? I don't think so. In my opinion, you're going to see more of the same, and that is more pushing of Vatican II down our throats and more wrapping of it in traditional paper uh, that has worked for them so far the, the, anybody that has been resisting Vatican II has fallen for that line hook, line and sinker uh, and uh, they, they are very successful in bringing around any kind of resistance with that and, and I think their bigger problem is how to deal with the radical liberals I mean there's a whole section of them that you know, would like to see a uh, a complete uh, transformation of, of Catholicism far beyond what you've seen so far. And uh, there's a significant amount of bishops that way. And um, so, uh, But I do think that they, they will just continue the same line. That's my opinion. But, like, you know, who knows? Who knows? 
Okay, and um, I also, I don't know if you already answered this question, but do you uh, have any idea who you think the successor will be or who the prime candidates are? I've seen lists, uh, but uh, they're all pretty obscure to me, except Cardinal Dolan of New York. Uh, he's the only one I really knew, but he doesn't have a chance. He doesn't, you know, uh, there's no possible way uh, that they will elect him for various reasons. Uh, but uh, the uh, it's just hard to tell. Uh, go anyway, uh, and it could be a very obscure person. Okay. All right. Thank you, Excellency. All right. Thanks for the call. Father, did you have anything to add? Uh, on that, uh, I, uh, I have an initial impression, an initial uh, feeling that uh, some of the things that Benedict XVI did uh, that were part of these uh, traditional trappings uh, were uh, too much for uh, others in the hierarchy, and that uh, I feel that there may be a, a, a backing away from some of that in the next candidate uh, that they get. Sure, they'll, they'll try to sell it as um, continuity, but I think perhaps not as, um, uh, as explicitly as Ratzinger tried to sell it. But that's my uh, opinion, and, you know, I'm not much of a prophet, so... Mm. I think there's merit to that. There's a lot of the hierarchy, Novus Order hierarchy, that is dissatisfied with uh, Ratzinger's, uh, let's say, eagerness with regard to the traditional movement. Yeah, because, it, I, I mean, if I were, uh, I suppose, some sort of uh, conservative uh, uh, cardinal, and I looked at what he did, for instance, with the Society of St. Pius X, uh, I would probably say that, well, you had gone too far. There's nothing that you could do with people like this. Why uh, why continue? Why why uh, bother to make the effort? Obviously, it's not going to go anywhere. You're just going to get a black eye for it. I mean, uh, you know, I can see someone who is a conservative saying that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. We've got a couple questions in from Twitter, which I, I think are interesting. Um, two of them, and I, I think... Father can take one, and his excellency can take another. Um, what will happen now to Bishop Fillet that Ratzinger has resigned? Who will try to sell out the SSPX to him? Uh, and I guess basically, who who's who's the person you're going to sell out to now? And the second question: um, Any advice for how to explain Benedict XVI's abdication to Aunt Helen? Does this actually matter for Joe Sede? So the, the the first question on, on uh, uh, Bishop Fillet is what that uh, who is he going to sell out to now? Right. Is it, well, that's sort of a rhetorical question. I mean, uh, my personal uh, feeling is is that now things are going to settle down to the status quo ante for the Society of Saint Pius the Tenth. That they're going to continue to say that well. You know, we would like uh, some sort of reconciliation at some point um, with uh, uh, with the Vatican, and uh, you know, we'd be more than happy to continue discussions with them, et cetera. But no, I, I don't think anything's going to happen uh, at, the, uh, at this point. I think that if anything uh, was going to happen, it would have happened under Benedict XVI. But I think the, that, uh, you know, with his resignation or death, I mean, that's sort of the, the stale uh, date on the deal. 
that it's 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 uh, not really going to be good after that. So I think they will go back to their uh, uh, previous status with the Vatican, and that uh, nothing more will uh, develop for for an awful long time. So uh, I uh, hear perhaps them talking about it a little bit, but I I, I don't think that there will be the extent of the dealings that we've seen in the past. And the second question? The second question is, how do you explain uh, the abdication to Aunt Helen, and does this matter to Joe Sede? Uh, well, no, I, I think just the same way that Bishop Sanborn uh, explained it, that it uh, seems to be something that um, uh, that Benedict XVI gave the real reasons for, and that we should more or less take it at, uh, take it at face value. You know, with the understanding that, uh, you know, uh, he tried to sell this idea of Vatican II as, as being continuous w with uh, church teaching in the past, but, uh, you know, it really still isn't. So in the day-to-day -day world, it doesn't make too much difference to us. All right. Well, I'm looking at our caller queue. We definitely have less time left than we have room for callers. So those of you who are in the call queue who are proficient with the Internet, I would encourage you to go to Twitter to post your question and hang up. Um, and that way you won't get your – you'll get your question answered um, because I won't be able to. There's, a, there's, there's more than ten calls in queue, and we won't have time to So you're to going to know questions. states? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Anything from We're going to have a lottery <laughs> for for which uh but um the the states that are next uh I think I've got Colorado, Florida and um uh Washington. So those of you who are in Colorado, uh Florida or Washington, you can hold out hope that your question will be answered. The rest of you abandon all hope. Uh, that your question will be answered. Uh, but please go to Twitter and ask your question there, and I will try to, to get to that. Also, um, we're going to go full-time on our show, but I'm going to spend five, maybe seven minutes with His Excellency on, uh, on the back end talking about one or two of the things. I'm sure some of you may have been very, very scandalized who've never tuned into our show before that um, His Excellency postulated that Benedict was not a true pope, but we're going to go over a couple of his teachings that he's uh, given out in the last few years that, that um, are quite surprising. And you won't be able to hear them in our regular broadcast, but after the show wraps, if you uh, download the podcast and fast-forward to the end, you'll hear the last five or ten minutes. That discussion will be there off the air but available for download. Okay, uh, we'll go to some of our last callers. At, uh, from the state of Florida, you are on Restoration Radio with Father Jakarta and Bishop Sanborn. Hello. Hello. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Yes. Okay, excellent. Uh, hi, Father and uh, Bishop Sanborn and uh, Stephen. I actually had a couple questions I had posted on as a comment on the radio show, but I didn't know if you saw it on there, so I just wanted to make sure they were answered. Um, they're kind of associated. Um, the first one was, is it possible for heretical cardinals to elect a valid pope? Uh, Father Takata and I will disagree on that. Which would you want to hear both, or do you want to hear one? <laughs> oh, well, uh, uh, well, I guess both. All right. Well, I'll go first. Uh, the uh, the 
the position that I hold is that uh, while they are heretics de facto, which means in the real order, and, uh, you know, uh, they are not heretics in the juridical order because they have not been declared so. And therefore, there are no juridical effects of, of that. And therefore, their heresy does not affect their juridical ability to elect a pope. See, so it's something like uh, if, if, uh, uh, for example, in, in normal crimes, uh, the crime, the, the fact of the crime comes before the juridical declaration of the crime, which happens in court. So somebody could be an axe murderer, uh, really and truly, but he doesn't become an axe murderer before the law until he's condemned in front of a judge. See, So uh, that's what we're saying concerning, well, I'm saying. Uh, concerning those uh, those uh, people that they are heretics, uh, and they they espouse heresy in in, in fact, and all of the all of the factual uh, heresy has its effect, uh, and and therefore we we flee from them and pay no attention to them and condemn them, but uh, it doesn't have juridical effect until they are condemned juridically. So that's how they they can manage to do a, a legitimate election. So now go to Father Chikata, and he'll give you his his ideas. Well, uh, uh, to a large extent, what uh, Bishop Sanborn said, naturally, I agree with. Uh, the uh, difficulty that I would have with a heretical cardinal uh, validly electing a pope is that for uh, one to be appointed to... Uh, an office in the church, he has to be appointed by someone who has the jurisdiction to do so. And I would say that the post-conciliar popes uh, do not have the jurisdiction to um, uh, appoint cardinals to uh, the position of being electors. And I think that that's the, the uh, fundamental. Um, I think that that's the fundamental difference. So uh, that's, but it's certainly something. Uh, it's an issue that you know one can disagree about. But um, in uh, in the practical order, we agree on nearly all of the principles. Well, that kind of ties into my next question then um, regarding if the visibility of the church is associated with the ordinary jurisdiction of the bishops. And all those bishops are heretical, um, and they no longer have jurisdiction or valid orders. And uh, where do you, where's the visibility of the church? And I realize the Guardian thesis answers this, but setting that aside, that that's purely theoretical, isn't it? Uh, I would say no. It's not purely theoretical. That there is a a twofold side, or two sides to anybody in the hierarchy. The one is his designation to be a bishop. The other is the power that comes from Christ through the Pope. And there must be a combination of those two things. The one comes from, we might say, the human side of the church, that is, the from below, the designation. The other comes from Christ as head of the church through the Pope. All right, so it is possible to separate those two things. You can have a designation, but you uh, don't have power. 
just like a, a president-elect in November to January, he has a designation, but no power. And he's not the president uh, during that time. And so you, uh, in the uh, thesis of the Gerard de Laurier, you have a, a, a hierarchy still in place, but only materially. That is a, a, uh, a designated structure that could come to power, but has not. Uh, and uh, so that, that that's just the explanation given. That's not purely theoretical, and it's quite real. I mean, the designations are real. So, uh-huh. uh, so you know, uh, would, I don't know if does, that explains Father Sakata, do you agree with that? I would say, well, the institutions uh, continue to exist, all these these different institutions. You know, the, the, the office of, uh, let's say, the bishop, Archbishop of Cincinnati, uh, continues to exist, uh, uh, and so on and so on throughout the church. Um, Regardless, so, uh, but the uh, uh, question of, of uh, so from that point of view, the institutions continue to be visible. Um, but as far as the uh, visibility of the church in general, I mean, it can be reduced to a very small number of people. And you find theologians who say that as well. But, uh, you know, in the situation in which we are, you're not going to find uh, an absolutely uh, perfect uh, answer to this question, I don't think, because it's, it's, um, uh, these are, are questions that have never been contemplated before because, of the, uh, because what we face is the, the extent of the apostasy of Vatican II. And so some of these things are, some of these theories that we end up with are uh, going to be a little bit speculative. And I think Bishop Sanborn said in his, um, but the important thing I think is what Bishop Sanborn said in his uh, article, Resistance and Indefectibility, that while, um, uh, you know, some aspects of stated the contents of may cause you to end up end up in mystery uh, as to what's to come or how the solution is is uh, ultimately going to be resolved, you do not end up in contradiction. Uh, and if, if you accept the um, entire legitimacy of the Vatican II hierarchy as, as true bishops and true popes, uh, you end up in contradiction. Yes, perfectly true. Yeah, and, uh, um, you know, we're not going to be able to answer everything perfectly. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose my fear is that it seems like we're trading off, either we're trading in the visibility of the church for the inerrancy of the church. Is like a, You know what I mean? Like a society is trading well, that's, off. That's what? a real good question. But the thing is that, that the visibility of the church is as, as the column of truth. And maintaining that... Uh, the Novus Ordo hierarchy, um, th- that they have to be uh, a real hierarchy because of the visibility of the church, it doesn't get you to the column of truth because they're teaching heresy and error. So what happens is is the, the, the very purpose of the concept of visibility is to draw people to the truth. And you don't get that by maintaining that of the... Um, occupants of the, the Vatican and the diocesan sees, uh, you know, are, are true and legitimate uh, hierarchs with jurisdiction. In other words, to use an analogy, 
a pile of dung is plenty visible, but it is not the column of truth. And to say, well, we need a visible church, therefore we're going to call the pile of dung the church, doesn't solve your theological problem. Does that answer your question, caller? Uh, Yeah, enough. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Very good question. Okay, so... um, I think we're going to have time for for one more question. Those of you who are joining us, um, you are listening to Restoration Radio. Our topic today is the resignation of Benedict XVI. We are joined by Bishop Donald Sanborn from Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, where it's significantly warmer than it is here in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, And we're also joined by Father Anthony Chicada um, from St. Gertrude the Great in Westchester, Ohio, where it's maybe just a little bit colder than it is here in Kansas City, Missouri. we have i'm going to try we'll try one more um we'll try one more uh phone question and then we will we'll try to wrap up um so let me see where this person is calling from and see if that that little trick works um we have someone calling from washington uh caller from washington you are on with father chicada and bishop sanborn Hello, Your Excellency, Father Shikata and, and Stephen. Uh, it's an honor to speak with all of you. Uh, I had a question uh, building on uh, some of the things that the last caller had, particularly about uh, the offices and visibility. I, I understand uh, uh, the positions and all that uh, we're in mystery and we don't understand how to solve all these problems. And I, I know that uh, in CMRI, uh, Bishop Pivarunas is, uh, you know, he's not interested in in some kind of conclave, and he's, you know, embarrassed by the so-called Pope Michael and other uh, fancy conclaves that happened in the earlier latter days of the Seti the Conscious movement. Uh, but what I'm getting at is, um, just as you as Father Shikata, you pointed out in, in your articles and even tonight that some of these things aren't foreseen in canon law and in other rules of the church. Do you ever foresee a time, even though you may not uh, see it now, do you ever foresee a time where maybe the traditionalist movement could come to a point where they, even if they weren't like a big society, say, of the SSPX, but that they would decide to meet together? To deal with this issue, if, if we were big enough, or you know that we uh, represented Catholics a little bit more, and we did with these uh, movements, even if they were loosely organized, such as yourselves, that you were able to meet together and agree on this, do you ever foresee a time that that might happen uh, regarding to deal with this issue of uh, the offices, and uh, particularly the papacy? Well, I don't think that that. Um Theoretically, that would be possible from uh, the point of view of church law, because uh, uh, one of the uh, important principles in church law is that uh, if uh, someone uh, occupies an office, is is functioning in an office, but is somehow doing so illegitimately somehow. Let's say someone who occupies the 
the bishops see in one of these these communist countries, say in Hungary, say the see of Estrogen, mm-hmm. and say he was uh, there was a guy who was a, a peace movement priest in favor of communism, and the um, uh, bishop of, of uh, Estragon died, and this man uh, was in effect appointed by the government, say he was consecrated a bishop, uh, and he was going around functioning as the bishop of, of Estragon. Well, to you know, dislodge him from uh, his uh, position before he could be replaced uh, legitimately there would have to be a declaration from someone in authority that he was occupying his um, uh, this, this, this function somehow illegitimately and we wouldn't have the power to do that when it would come to something like the successor of theater so I mean it's, it's sort of nipped off in the butt so uh, you know that uh, we really could not do something like a uh, conclave in terms of um, uh, the requirements of church law, and uh, you know that is, uh, uh, I think, uh, was really pointed out by Bishop uh, Gerard de Laurier, where he he talks about these people as, as the occupants of uh, the sea. In fact, they do occupy. This guy does occupy the Holy See, and but we don't have the authority to issue a declaration to dislodge him. So that would be a dead end. Yes. Uh, and maybe you're saying maybe we should get together and just uh, make some sort of uh, general public uh, statement or, or uh, for lack of a better word, witness to the traditional movement. Uh, you know, that, that's conceivably possible. Yes, uh, it is. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, we agree on most things and... Uh, that's conceivably possible. How much good that will do, I, I don't know. A lot of people like to see traditionalists together and united, but they really, you know, they don't need to be united to to give you what you need. What you need is the local parish. You need your priest. You need the sacraments, the mass. Uh, a, a group, uh, any kind of group, no matter how organized it is, could never replace the church. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I think that there is a longing for a replacement of the church. And the SSPX people have seen the SSPX as a sort of surrogate church. That's one of the reasons why they're so attached to it. They have everything, uh, including a magisterium and, and a, a court to annul marriages. And, uh, and jogathons and yeah, Friday yeah, you know, yeah, Everything is there for you. And, uh, and it's very deceiving for one thing, it is not a, a, a surrogate church. Secondly, look at how many people are going to fall as a result of a huge organization. If you had small communities that were, say, in, in good relationship one with another, if one falls, the other doesn't necessarily fall. It's like a tremendous grid that is all hooked up together, if one thing goes, the rest of it goes too, as we've seen in these big blackouts. But in in something that is independently organized, uh, there is much less less danger of that. So it's not necessarily a desirable thing that all traditionalists come together. Does that answer your question, Colin? Well, yes, I I do appreciate, but in in another way... uh, I, I could just say, but Your Excellency, uh, that the the, uh, 
divine constitution of the church itself is uh, set up that way, that it's one man running it, and, and we look to it. And so, I, it, it does. yes, it does have its weaknesses, and it's it's been usurped. I guess, what, you know, I... I'm going to let you finish your question, but I just need to announce to anybody who's listening on the live stream that at, in about, about 30 seconds or so, the stream is going to get cut off, or you're going to hear us continue to talk. All that will mean is we're going to finish up this conversation. We'll also talk about some other things. Then the show will wrap, and then the podcast will be available. So in about 15 minutes after you hear the stream cut off, come back. And you can download the full show and then and then fast forward here to the final 15 minutes, and you'll get to hear some of this conversation, which we'll continue to do uh, now. I'm sorry, caller, go ahead with your question. Well, well, thank you, and and I really appreciate what Your Excellency and Father Chicago were telling me, and, and I, I thank you for that. And again, I'm, I'm just asking hypothetically these type of things. I'm just th- saying that um, even the divine constitution of the Church has that. Uh, problem that, that the modernists have usurped the offices that way because it is top-heavy, shall we say. And I, I'm just wondering, though, uh, if eventually, if things aren't getting better, we might have to face the reality that, uh, well, Pope Pius X saved, saved us from, but Protestants during that time period, uh, if you study the Presbyterians and other, other mainline denominations, they, they set their whole organizations from the you know the hierarchy of the assembly were taken over like what happened to us in Vatican at Vatican II, and I'm just and eventually they they were trying the same types of things, but eventually, what happened with a lot of those Protestants? And I realize Protestants, you know, you don't want to compare it to the Church, but I'm just saying something similar happened. They're they're their hierarchy was usurped, and eventually they had to face the fact that they had to, they were starting another organization. And I, I just ponder these things. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a canon lawyer. I, I'm, I'm just a layman and all that. But I'm just, and I appreciate what you're saying. But I'm saying since synthesis, we're in such a, such a mess where even uh, things haven't force, been foreseen like this, and not everything. Mapped out like that. I just, I just think about those kind of things and wonder well, what, what's coming next. We will never, ever establish a counter organization to the Catholic Church. Not ever. Mm-hmm. We would die before doing that. We are a stable in the storm, and we will always be only that—a stable in the storm. That is a place of refuge in a very difficult situation, uh, in which we don't have any. Uh, ordinary and canonical jurisdiction but we have a, a true jurisdiction to to give the sacraments but not according to the you know the normal canonical forms uh but uh we will never uh, ever do what protestants did don't forget protestants have a different a whole different idea of the church from what catholics have and yes. uh it's just repugnant the, the very idea of establishing some sort of counter organization to the catholicism is totally repugnant so you know I, I don't think that the analogy is there and i don't think there's anything to fear there okay thank you your excellency yes. all right well thanks for the call you're welcome 
Okay, um, so you other callers who are in the queue um, who are still with us, I'm sorry we won't be able to get to your question. If you do want to submit a question, you've got your final chance at True, if you can send it to, if you go to Twitter and you look up at True Restoration, then you will find us and you can submit a question that way. Otherwise, I'm sorry, we just had too many calls tonight. We had, uh, what's my number? We had 60 calls and we got to maybe um, a third of them. So sorry we missed you, um, but uh, I'm going to leave you on so you can continue to listen to the stream. Father Jakarta, Your Excellency, thank you so much um, for everything. I, I wanted to just end our show. As I said, Your Excellency, you might have shocked some people in the beginning by by telling them that you don't consider Benedict to be the Pope. Most people are used to hearing that he's very traditional and he's very conservative. And check out, he's got the fanon on and he's got the red shoes and... You know, mm-hmm. he's he's the real deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought two of your articles, um, one um, called Damning Limbo to Hell, which you did in January of 2006, shortly after Benedict issued an, uh, an opinion or a ruling or a teaching on limbo, and also Contraception, which is um, actually more recent. So something at the beginning and at the end of his non-pontificate. Would you like to talk just briefly about... Um, the traditional teaching of limbo, what Benedict had to say, why this is in opposition? Well, the uh, first of all, in limbo, you have to distinguish the limbo of the patriarchs in the Old Testament, which is certainly Catholic dogma. Then there is limbo in the New Testament, which is a theological conclusion. It's not Catholic dogma. Um, so we can't pin heresy on him for denying limbo, but nonetheless, it is a very important theological conclusion that is generated by certain truths of the faith. And that is that uh, uh, people, uh, babies, who die unbaptized cannot uh, go to heaven because they are unbaptized and by the justice of God cannot be damned to the hell of torments because they haven't done anything wrong on their own. So the conclusion from those two articles of faith, the justice of God and the inability to enter heaven without sanctifying grace, uh, is, it generates the existence of limbo, that there must be a place in which souls that are in, in that category go. Uh, and, um, uh, and so it has always been taught by Catholic theologians and has been commonly taught in catechisms and uh, the uh, so if you say well limbo doesn't exist well then what happens to those babies they cannot go to heaven so where else do they go and the answer is hell so effectively according to Catholic dogma anyway Ratzinger is damning unbaptized babies to the, the hell of torments uh, which is contrary to the justice of God uh, and uh, therefore is a blasphemous insult ag- against God that, that these babies would go there. Now, if you said to Ratzinger, uh, well, does that mean the babies go to hell? He would say, oh, no, they go to heaven. And that also violates a, a, a Catholic dogma concerning the necessity of sanctifying grace in order to go to heaven. So it, it, there are big Catholic dogmas, we might say, involved in that denial of limbo. Uh, although, you know, to deny limbo in itself, is it a heresy? No. But uh, implicitly, uh, you are you are committed to heresy by denying limbo. Mm-hmm. Father, did you have anything you wanted to add on to that? 
No, no, that's a, a, a very precise and very um, clear explanation of the problem. You, you have have uh, two propositions that you end up denying, and uh, but that's what happens with modernist discourse. Well, you two sound like seminary professors. <laughs> that might be that might be a little too clear for most folks. Um, okay, and uh, the last thing I. Uh, the last teaching point I wanted to talk about was contraception. Your Excellency wrote an article called A Benedict Approves Contraception. Yeah. Um, again, uh, I hate to say this, but traditional teaching of the church, uh, what does Benedict teach, and how are these in opposition? Well, the traditional teaching of the church is very, very clear. It's a, it's a moral teaching that belongs uh, to... Uh, Solemn uh, uh, magisterium, namely casti canubii, that that artificial birth control is is gravely immoral, the mortal sin, uh, and uh, that statement of Pius XI in the 1930s was taken as a an act of solemn magisterium. So he comes along and says that the use of prophylactics is. Uh, Justified. Uh, he used in German the word begründet, which means grounded or justified. That's what it says in the in the dictionary. Uh, but because he's talking about a moral issue, the word justified is is very much uh, understood, uh, at least in English, uh, that that uh, that there is a ground for using it, uh, mm. based on the fact that the uh, for for uh, first he said for female prostitutes to use these sort of things in order to preserve their victims, let's say, from getting AIDS. And uh, I'm sorry, it was the male prostitutes. Uh, yes, the male prostitutes uh, would... Uh, it's were... hard to keep the depravity straight. Right, <laughs> right yes. <laughs> then when asked a few days later, well, does it apply to the female prostitutes, he said, yes, it does, uh, which means that it is uh, justified for female prostitutes to engage in sexual intercourse while using uh, prophylactics and various other forms of birth control. Uh, and um, uh, this is clearly contrary to the, the teaching of the Catholic Church, the moral teaching of the Catholic Church. It is heretical. Uh, and there was a, a, you know, a great deal of, of spin generated in order to protect him uh, uh, I mean, it'd be too long to go into here, but uh, you know, they, there was a rush to protect him, uh, and uh, but it, it was all quite clear. I was wondering. Uh, I said, you know, what do you? How do you qualify for being able to use these things? Do you have to be a card-carrying uh, male prostitute or female <laughs> prostitute? Well, you know, what is? Do you have to be belong to the union? Or, Are you or, now, or have you ever been? Yes, you know. How do you get this free pass, and what do you need to do? And uh, register with the Vatican or something? And uh, you can just apply to your local diocese. <laughs> have that. They'll have that ready for you. Uh, I mean, it is it is somewhat humorous, but it is so disgusting. I mean, it is filthy, disgusting that this should come out of the mouth of somebody that claims to be the Roman Pontiff. It is dirty, 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 filthy, and uh, it's scandal. Hmm. Well, there's no understatement from His Excellency on that last point. <laughs> uh, no, there certainly isn't. But we're, 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 
We're uh, we're getting close to Lent, so um, it looks like Benedict XVI will be giving up the papacy for Lent. I don't know how either <laughs> of you are going to be topping that. Um, so you'll you'll have to think. Long I think and he's long. given it up a long time ago. <laughs> um, no more red he shoes. Gave, he gave up. He gave up a claim to the papacy. Yeah, no more red shoes. Um, well. Uh, uh, Your Excellency, Father, thank you so much um, for your time. Um, one of the last trivia questions, I think, uh, relating to some set of a contest, they thought, well, I, I can go to Mass uh, in, during the set of a contest period when the whole world will be set of a contest because, you know, it won't be unicum benedicto. And, uh, Your Excellency, we were talking about this in the pre-show, but we all know that Father Chicada is uh, one of the um, main article writers here. And how would you respond to the the happy set of a contest who gets to go to Mass this, this, this Sunday. Oh, I don't think it would quite design. work that way because, you know, you'd also be confronted by the local diocesan bishop, too. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think that would make some problems for you. So, well, yes, there and it they, is. They still have the position of being in union with that hierarchy. That's the problem. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, it's not merely the vacancy. They are in communion with that Novus Ordo hierarchy. That's the problem. Well, you know, you're actually, that's the conciliar church that's not to be confused with the Catholic church, and we'll take a one-hour Eucharistic fast, but we'll resist the catechism, and, yeah. well, I can't keep track of all of it. But um, you've been listening to Restoration Radio. Our guests tonight have been um, Bishop Donald Sanborn, rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. I have linked to the seminary website on Twitter if you'd like to donate. We're always looking for... Uh, benefactors to help the young men who actually in this dark period of time would like to complete a foundation. And if you'd like to send a donation to His Excellency, um, the you can send it to Most Holy Trinity Seminary, 1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida, 34602. Again, 1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida, 34602. Uh, they do accept cash, and large donations uh, are not ever turned away. Um, we got some relief from Father Anthony Chicado, who came in to help uh, Bishop Sandward been a answering question after question. Father Chicada, uh, pastors at oh, – that sounds so Protestant to say that. Uh, he assists at St. Gertrude the Great uh, Roman Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio, um, and I've referenced articles that both of these uh, clergy have written in, on Twitter today, including Resistance and Indefectibility, which was cited uh, multiple times today during the show. Those are all up on Twitter, so you can go read, do some research on your own, and learn a little bit more. Um, if you'd like to support Father Chicada's work, you can send donations to 4900 Rialto Road. That's R-I-A-L-T-O Road, Westchester, Ohio, 45069. Uh, and you can also pay both of the clergy uh, with wine. Just make sure that you send it before Lent or just mark it for don't open till after Easter. And um, that's one way that you can compensate our priests for their hard time. We are, after all, Catholic um, and not allergic to alcohol. Um, I, I, there, were some, there were lots of other questions, Your Excellency, but I think some of them will be answered in the Trad Conspiracy show later this year, which Father Chicago will be on, and the Universal Ordinary Magisterium show, which Bishop Sanborn will be on, um, confronting some of these other things that people contort themselves with, like canonizations and beatifications and that kind of thing. But thank you so much for joining us. Um, we will 
um, leave you with Tuas Petrus. And again, thank you so much, Your Excellency, and thank you, Father, for, for your time. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Goodbye. 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 This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.